Uh, Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Uh, my Bible says a contemplation of Asaph, just at the beginning there, but starting in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth on a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which, have we, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from, our, from their children, telling to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. It may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for and trust and believe, Lord, that your spirit will move mightily among this place tonight. Lord, I pray for your spirit upon me. I need your help, as I always do, Lord, studying, preparing, and then lastly, Lord, delivering your word. So I just pray, Lord, for you to minister in and through this place tonight, in our midst tonight, Lord, that we would have soft hearts tender hearts, Lord, ears and hearts that are ready to apply what you teach us. And Lord, remind us of things that maybe we haven't thought of in a while, but your spirit wants us to hear. And Lord, we pray that you'd minister to each person that which they need, for you know what each person here needs tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We never want to live in the past, but we absolutely want to learn from it. Amen. And if you know anything about Israel and the scriptures, you know God intended his people to remember the past. In fact, the vast majority of the scriptures, with the exception of future prophecy that hasn't taken place yet, are a recording of what has previously taken place. Everything you read in your Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, except for the future stuff, has already taken place anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 years ago. We all know that, right? Everything you're reading about has already taken place. But regarding Israel, that required looking back was for a reason. And so is our looking back in the Scriptures. The looking back is always for learning. But it's in concert with appreciating and applying. Appreciating and applying. Without that, the learning's of no actual value, right? If you learn something that goes in one ear and out the other, there is no value. I mentioned this coming Sunday we'll be looking at the book of Haggai, and we'll also be taking uh, the Lord's Supper this Sunday for the very same reasons. We're looking back. We are appreciating. We're applying what God has done, what He's commanded, what He has reminded and we know that we have the, um, we know now that the reference of the Last Supper, that Last Supper was the Passover meal. That night there in the upper room discourse, they, they were observing the Passover. And we know that for the children of Israel, the Passover, that Seder meal, was the annual feast 
where the nation would not only remember the exodus from Egypt, but they were to teach it to the next generation. You guys know that, right? They were supposed to teach exactly what God had done in passing over each house. The blood had to be on the doorpost. Each of the children had to hear this every year, what God had done on their behalf. That they had been set free. Remember what God said, they would be set free to worship the Lord. Not just set free to go build a great nation, but set free to worship the Lord. Here in Psalm 78, we have this reflection from Asaph. It's the longest of the historical psalms, the longest of the historical ones in the book of Psalms. 72 verses of Asaph recalling the great things that God has done for Israel and the many ways they spurned the blessings and kindness of God. And yet, they were brought back and brought back again, and brought back again, and brought back again. They were healed, they were provided for, and restored many times. Now, in a, in a smaller sense, that's kind of our life all the time, right? God's always forgiving us, forgiving us, forgiving us, and resetting us, and resetting us, although we should be still moving forward in faith. It shouldn't be a complete abandonment. But we won't cover and can't cover all these verses this evening, all these 72 verses, but they are equal parts faith-building and worship-inspiring alongside stern warnings to avoid Israel's mistakes of the past. Again, we, we, we need this individually. Our nation needs to read Psalm 78. needs to read Haggai too. We'll talk about that Sunday. But this Sunday, uh, if you look at like uh, Psalm 78 as a museum. You ever been to the, anyone ever been to Washington D.C. in the different museums? They got the Smithsonian's. They're like in in rows right down the mall there. And I grew up outside the Beltway, so as a kid, it was like my favorite thing to go to the Air and Space Museum. I love. Yeah, we'd take the school buses and they'd line up eight million yellow buses in front of there, and we'd get out. And all I wanted was the dehydrated ice cream. And to look at airplanes and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, you have all those museums in a row, and they, and they each have different themes. You, you have the Museum of Natural History, you've got Air and Space, you know, you've got these different uh, museums, but they're all in a row. And if you look at like Psalm 78 as a museum of Israel's past, and you look at Haggai as a different museum, we'll kind of walk through both today and then Sunday. But if you're taking notes um, this evening, you see the title, God's goodness to ancient Israel and how it speaks to us today or tonight, if you will. Everything I said in setting the backdrop here for this chapter applies to these first eight verses, the first eight verses that we read, which is the preamble of Asaph, and, and he's saying and proclaiming why he is about to, to write or say this song or this psalm that he's about to hymn. Some of your Bibles may have the subtitle of contemplation, which I mentioned, uh, which means a reflection or to deliberate or to meditate on what God has done on behalf of the nation of Israel. And Asaph's reflection is read aloud, as I'm doing tonight. He would speak it out loud. He would sing it out loud to stir the hearts of the people, that, that they would hear that God wants you to know this. He wants you to remember this. He wants you to look back on this. So there in verse 1, let's kind of roll through a few of these. 
He says, give ear, my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Open your ears. Be intentional to listen. Remember, Jesus would sometimes cry aloud, cry aloud, he who has ears, let him hear. Remember, Jesus would say that. He says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings of old. Now, you might first glance say, I did, that didn't seem like a parable. When you read the rest of it, you might still say, that doesn't seem like a parable. Except for one little section near uh, the last like 12 verses or so, there, there's something parabolic about that. But what, he, what he's saying here, what the writer, what the psalmist is saying, what Asaph is saying is that in this psalm, in addition to the historical reference, references that he will make, there is a deeper and hidden meaning in the entire psalm. There's a deeper hidden meaning in what he's relaying, what he's reminding them from the past. There's something beneath the surface that's even greater than the historical reference points. In verse 3, he says, which we have heard and known our fathers have told us. They've heard this before. It's been told before, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be told again. In fact, it does. In verse 4, he says, We will not hide them from their children, telling the, to the generation to come the praise of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. There has to be a telling of this. We're not going to keep it from our children. No, we want them to hear it. All about his, and I have it underlined in my his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. We don't want our kids to be impressed and amazed by a world that is not impressive. Amen? It's fallen. I mean, everything, last night, we were, my wife and I, we were driving, we had, we had the evening to ourselves. All of our girls were one way at college, two were up. I said, let's go, we'll go grab something to eat. Last night, and just we got on that, that beautiful Hall Street and um, head, head, heading, heading east, and right there in the sky, you guys saw the full moon last night. And of course, Israel's very connected to the lunar cycle, all the feast, everything is, is around the lunar cycle, the new moons, the, the moon for, you know, Passover, and it was a blood moon on top of all that. But it wasn't that, at that time of night. It was just huge because it ba barely come up in the sky and just a little bit dark. And it was just, it looked like it dwarfed the landscape. And there it was. And I was like, I said, you know, I'm sitting at a red light. I said, you know, we made those little red circles and God made that, right? Uh, his wonderful works. I mean, we can see them even in things that are not in every, you know, it's not like a miracle, but yet it is. God has set it in the sky. And I'm like, you know, long after we're all gone, that moon will still be there. Same moon Moses was looking at. The same moon David was looking at. It's the same moon that Jesus would have seen. And here it is. And so uh, we want our children to see the strength and the wonderful works that God has done. Verse 5, for he established a testimony. Again, we're just setting the stage here. For he established a testimony in Jacob and a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. So this testimony, he said, a testimony in Jacob. We know that uh, the tablets, even in the ark, were called the testimony. The law itself was called the testimony. The testimony in Jacob. Jacob, of course, another name that was Jacob's given name, and then God gives him the name uh, Israel, which is uh, mentioned in the same verse, a law appointed in Israel. So both of Jacob's names there. 
but the law is mentioned as well. So the testimony and the law are one and the same, but it's, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all the oracles of God, all that God gave to the law and the prophets, not just the Tanakh, but even the other prophets that would come afterwards, Joshua and Samuel and all the other that would come, the testimony of God, the, the law of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, God gave this to Moses and he gave it to the people. You shall teach them to your children, them being the laws, the commandments, the instructions, the oracles of God. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Basically, constantly and consistently. Now, I didn't see dinner there. It's all in there, right? Everything, if you're up, if you're moving, even just before you go to bed. And in those days, everyone's in the same tent or in the same small house, and the father could actually give one more parting spiritual insight before or pray over the family before everybody nods off to bed. But basically, again, consistently and constantly. And the command is to the fathers, Obviously, mothers uh, do this, but the head of the house is supposed to set the right direction that we're going to teach our children the way to the Lord. And so we had just a men's day uh, this past Saturday. All the guys, one of the things we're talking about is, is the responsibility that God has given to fathers to teach the children. Of course, uh, if, a, if a godly father is present, then more than likely you're going to have a godly mother as well. And many times, thankfully, there are godly mothers even when there's not a godly father, and uh, we're appreciative of that. But but it is a responsibility that's given to fathers. Verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, the generation who would be, who would be born, that they may arise and declare to them their, and their children uh, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. So this was to be generationally given. The generation after generation that, uh, I don't have any grandkids yet, but... Someday we look forward to that and that we would be teaching our girls and our girls and their husbands-to-be would be teaching their children and their children to their children. Uh, verses 5 and 6 comprise, if you take 5 and 6 together, uh, it comprises five generations. You can count them up um, in your Bible there. You can kind of see how it's laid out. But it's five generations in sequence. But the heart was for God to work in all generations, not just five, but it would be repetitive the 6th and the 7th and the 8th. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, things of the past are to be recounted for the sake of the children. I'm glad that God has blessed us with multi-generational uh, people in the body of Christ. And in this church that we have people that have been serving the Lord a lot longer than I have. And I've been serving a lot longer than some of the younger people have and all different points in between. But these things of the past that are to be recounted, and that's what Asaph is saying. Say some, and the uh, kind of the uh, implication here is that some of this may now be neglected. That's not being recounted to the generation. It's not being taught, and certainly we have that problem in our own nation today. We have that problem even in Christian homes where they're not teaching. Uh, much less, they don't even know much about their parents' testimony at all. You know, hey, how did your parents get saved? I don't know. They don't even have that kind of history of their own parents or much less the Word of God being 
uh, passed down. And so it's very important. John in the New Testament, the same John that wrote the book of John we're going through in the book of 1 John, there in that epistle, uh, he refers to children and the young men and the fathers. Uh, he even kind of sets that, again, there's, there's that level of maturity that each the fathers should be teaching the young men. The young men should be examples to the children. The children should be able to look up to the young men and look up to the fathers. And they would all be teaching these same testimonies of the Lord, fathers in faith. Verse 7, um, that they may set their hope in God. And I actually read verse 7 accidentally, but let's read it again. That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Um, to know and to love and to follow God's law, that all future generations would set their hope in God. Not in themselves. Not in the land God had given them. Not in their possessions. Not in the pleasures of the world. Not in idols. I, I mentioned we, we have two daughters in their college right now. Some of you have kids in college. Some of you have kids in, or grandkids in college. You know, you know uh, a lot of you know, young people are setting their hope in, well, if I land the perfect job, if I land the perfect person, if I get the perfect spouse, if I get the perfect career, if I get the perfect house. No, we're not to set our hope on those things. I mean, God... Thankfully, gives us a lot of those things as a blessing. I, I, I appreciate the spouse God's given me. I appreciate the house we live in. I appreciate that I actually have a job. Thank all of you that I have a job. But none of those things are what we set our hope in, right? That, all, that could all be gone tomorrow. Job found that out, right? I mean, he still had his spouse, but he lost everything else. And it was a whole test. See, what was his real hope in? So we to teach our children to set their hope in God and, and not their hope in, well, I hope, I hope that the government wipes out my student debt. I hope that this happens. I hope this happens. But not forget the very commandments that they have been told. Of course, they have to be told these things. Verse 8, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Many times in his, Israel's history, there were not faithful generations, and this goes pretty far back. But this is the first rebuking, this is the first re reminding counsel in this reflection of Asap, where he's direct here, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, um, this is a deeper do not than the do not where it says do not uh, follow, uh, do not forget. But this is a deeper do not. Not only do not forget, but do not follow or do not be like uh, your forefathers. They were stubborn. They were rebellious. In other words, they refused to do what God had commanded and they would rebel and in fact do the opposite. This is our nation today, isn't it? Whatever God says, let's do the complete opposite. This had taken hold in Israel many, many times where they would do the exact opposite of what God had said to do. Now, he says, don't, which was a stubborn and rebellious generation, 
Sadly, an entire generation, just this one instance, I mean, he's not speaking of all the instances because there would be many more generations. But he's speaking of one specific point in time. In Exodus 20, verse 5, you, you guys have probably read where uh, Moses explains to the people that the, the iniquities and the sins would extend to even the third and fourth generations. Even the third and fourth generations that, that once sin becomes entrenched, it's hard to root it out. The generations start to fall into the same pattern. A little refusal can last a long time, can it? A little bit of refusal, a little bit of, well, I'll just take a time off from the Lord. A little bit of bitterness towards God. All these things can last a long time. But if the heart isn't set aright, it says, a generation that did not set its heart aright, if the heart is not set in the right direction, if the heart's not set in the right direction, our spirit's not going to walk in faith. It's not going to walk in service to God. It's going to walk in service to self. We have a lot of self-service in America, don't we say? I used to have someone bag my groceries. That almost never happens anymore. If you go to Walmart, it's impossible. They don't even have, like, is there, a, is there an employee here tonight? You know, that kind of thing, you know, when you're there. Uh, it used to be like, you know, everybody had a cash register, register or something. But, but everything's self-service. But, but worse than self-service is self-serving. So many people just focused on serving themselves when God had created Israel to serve him, not to serve themselves. In fact, this, um, this entire psalm is written, this entire psalm is written that the hearer, that the reader would set or reset their hearts. Asaph is writing all this that the reader or the hearer of this, as he said, hear, open your ears or incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Back in verse 1, it's all written, it's all being spoken, it's all being proclaimed, that the reader or the hearer would set their heart in relation to the counsel and commands of God. In other words, we want to tune our frequency to what God is saying. We want to tune the channel to exactly what God, and tune everything else out to the exclusion of hearing just from the Lord. That's why we have to have quiet time in the Word, quiet time prayer. We can block all the other distractions out and hear just from the Lord personally. Because God, who is both good and worthy of our complete surrender and obedience, will cultivate that when we're hearing him with our hearts set in the right place. With God's intention being that our lives, it's always God's intention, it's never going to change. It's been that way all throughout history from the time he saved Adam, to Abel, to Noah, to, Ab to Enoch, to Abraham. But it's always God's intention, individually and as a nation, as he set Israel apart to be a set-apart nation. It's always been God's intention. And today, now, the church, we talked about this Sunday, the oneness in Jesus' prayer in the end of John 17. It's always been God's intention, and now bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, that we individually and collectively, the family of God, the church of God, the people of God, Israel, the nation of God, that we would glorify God and thus be blessed by God. Does that make sense? You cannot be blessed by God until you glorify God. God's not going to bless the one who, I don't want any part of you. 
or I don't have time for you. I really like you, God, but I just don't have time for you for the next 30 years. I kind of have a lot of big things I want to live out, and I just don't have, and that Israel fell into that same trap. Verses 9 and 10, we didn't read any of these yet, so these are new to us. Not that you haven't read them on your own, but in our study tonight, verses 9, actually, yeah, just verse 9 and 10 to start with. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. Ephraim, and all the other tribes as well, because Ephraim gets called out here, but the other tribes end up being guilty of the exact same thing. They all forgot the wondrous and miraculous things that the Lord had done exclusively for Israel and the 12 tribes. They all forgot it. And they forgot all that God had done, all that they had experienced, and the miracles and the power of God, it was completely forgotten. Like after I took certain tests in high school, gone. The second I walked through that door and hit the locker, can you remember questions five? I don't even know what was on it. Because you had crammed till 4 a.m. just enough to be able to answer it once and never again. What a sad progression these verses, actually all the way through verse 11 here. We'll look at that in just a second. What a sad progression this is. But Asap begins uh, his recounting of his nation's roller coaster journey with a scene that we don't specifically see anywhere in the Old Testament. What he cites here, the children of Israel being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. Uh, what he says there, uh, we don't see that specific scene anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's like when you go to the book of Jude, Jude tells us about Satan battling with, uh, uh, or the, uh, the angel battling Satan over the body of Moses. We wouldn't know that if Jude didn't write it. It's, no, it's nowhere a list in Scripture, but we know it in fact happened. It was given as divine revelation. And uh, here, Asaph tells us something that's not recorded anywhere else in the Old Testament scriptures. Some scholars believe that what he's citing here is a literal event, that Ephraim really was armed with bows and they did turn back at a specific battle that's not recorded elsewhere, or it might match a place elsewhere where those details were in fact left out, but Asaph fills in those blanks. Other scholars see it as a metaphor in describing Ephraim's heart and turning away from God, that it would be derelict on a soldier's part when they have a charge to go into battle and they decide to t turn and go the other direction. The book of Hosea portrays Ephraim, which is one of the largest tribes of the 12 tribes, as the leader, or as one of the main leaders, um, in the rebellion that brought a curse upon the nation. So Ephraim was charged in the book of Hosea specifically as playing a key role in leading some of the other tribes away from the Lord. Uh, but I believe these two verses refer to all the above. I believe it literally was an event that, because everything else in the entire chapter are all literal events. So I believe this was literal because everything else he talks about, with the exception of one parabolic uh, statement, 
near the end, but that's only applying to God, not applying to the nation. Everything applied to the nation in chapter 7-2 is literal, so I believe this literal event did take place, and there was a time that Ephraim, they were great warriors, they had their bows and arrows, but they bailed for whatever reason, and they turned back. So I believe it was literal, but I also believe um, that uh, in addition to it being literal, uh, that it also is, is an illustration of Ephraim's heart. Uh, and the role that the tribe played, that's clear in the book of Hosea. And then I believe it's also symbolic. Sometimes Ephraim was used to represent the whole nation. Uh, for example, in Second Chronicles 25.7, the Lord uses Ephraim's name to mean all 12 tribes. So, and that's, um, and that's primarily because they came from Joseph, who at one time was over everybody, and so you can kind of see back in time how God stitches some of these things together. But uh, Ephraim and all the other tribes, they, they all forgot the miraculous things and the wondrous things that God had done. And I mentioned this sad progression uh, that we see, verses 9 through 11. There is a sad progression. In verse 11 it says, and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. It is a sad progression, but Ephraim, if you take verses 9 through 11 together, we see three things, and I put them up on the screen. Ephraim retreated, then refused, then regressed. Retreated first, refused, and then ultimately regressed, which we talk about and this is what we see in the scriptures, the word backsliding or to slide back, to regress, to go back to a prior place, a place that was before we had full faith and trust in God. Uh, they refuse to live by faith and obey and trust God to help them because they turn back in the day of battle. Battles can be fierce, and I don't know why they turn back because uh, Asap doesn't tell us. He just says they turn back. And the way he says it, they would have known they shouldn't have turned back. All of us have done things we knew we shouldn't. Like, I probably shouldn't do this, but, but. For whatever reason, they turned back. They didn't live, they didn't trust God. They, they regressed to the point, they went all the way back to the point of forgetting that God had ever delivered them. God doesn't want us to rust out. Doesn't want us to run after our own desires, but that's what will happen if we forget the Lord. But Israel was not called to rust out, was not called to run to their own pleasures and their own desires. Israel was called to be a light to the nations. Ephraim was called to be a light, an encouragement to its own brothers, and a tool in the hand of God for his glory. As you've been with us in John chapter 4, John chapter uh, 14, 15, 16, and 17, and there in the upper room discourse, this prayer of Jesus that we've been in the last three weeks, we finished up there in the 17th chapter. We know that Jesus had personally chosen, although the Father gave them to him. So did the Father give them or did Jesus choose them? Yes. So, so yes, Jesus chose the 11, just like God had chosen Abraham and the nation that would come from Abraham. And then Jesus was sending the 11 into a world that already hates Jesus, is about to crucify him, hates the gospel, and is soon going to hate the 11. But, but Jesus told them, 
you're not to shrink back from the mission. I have overcome the world. Amen? That was the whole point. And, and God would be leading Israel by fire or by cloud and say, I'm going before you. If I conquered Pharaoh, I'll conquer any other, because he was the most powerful king in the world at that time. If I conquered Pharaoh, everyone else is a notch below. So the disciples, like Ephraim and like the nation of Israel, the disciples are not to turn back. We're not to turn back. Remember, these lessons are for us. Here we are, probably about 3,000 years after this is written, somewhere in that range. But we're not to turn back. Real faith follows God into difficulties. Amen? Real faith follows God into difficulties, through difficulties, through inconveniences, through nonstop agitation, all kinds of things. You name it. Real faith follows the Lord through these things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, straight into the fire. Their faith was like, all right, God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we cannot go back to idolatry. And real faith remembers the faithfulness of God. Remembers the faith. It's good for us to cultivate remembering God, you're faithful. God, I remember that you're faithful. That's why you have to be in the Word. All through the book of Hebrews 11. I don't know if anyone else, does anyone else ever good just go read Hebrews chapter 11? I put up on the screen, that's my Bible. And you can see that I have highlighted in green every time that it says, by faith. By faith. By faith. The Bible, by the way, I haven't said this in a while, but I've said it many times. The Bible is an incredibly repetitive book. You learn by repetition. You learn by being reminded of the same thing. Peter even says, I'm writing you these things, or you already know them. But he says again and again, the writer of Hebrews, which Sam is kind of swung me over. I now think maybe Luke wrote it, but that's okay. Whether Luke wrote it or Paul wrote it or someone else, the writer is just saying again and again, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. If you're obeying the Lord, if you're walking with the Lord, if you're worshiping the Lord, you can't forget the Lord. Amen? That's that simple. You're walking with Him, you're worshiping Him, Surrender to him, then you can't forget the Lord. And when you can't forget the Lord, you learn to trust him more because you're in relationship, because you lean on him for the smallest of things, which actually teach you to lean on him for the medium size, the next size, the next size, the next size. And you're not trusting in yourself or anything else that this world has to offer. I mean, I now know positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, like, it, it does not, I, I don't have any jealousy with someone who has a $120,000 vehicle. I, I don't care at all, right? Like, I know that after the new car smell, it could not make you any happier minutes later, much less days later, Amen. Let's take a brief look, though, at some of this remaining chapter. Um, 
And what God did, what Israel did in response to what God did, drop down to verse 12, which is the very next verse. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers. I'm not going to read everything here, but uh, I have circled in my Bible, um, and you can kind of look, if you just kind of glance at verses 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, the emphasis is all about God. Marvelous things he did, verse 11, he divided the sea. Middle of verse, he made the water stand up like a heap. Daytime, he led with a cloud. Um, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them a drink in abundance. He also brought streams. The whole emphasis is God did it all. There's nothing Israel brought to the table except for their sins, except for their past failures. There's nothing you and I brought to the Lord except for our sins and our past failures. Like the guy said, you know, you, you got something great that I need to get a hold of. No, he didn't see that in any of us. Now, we saw that in each other. If you're married and stuff, you saw something. But, but compared to the righteousness of God, we are filthy rags. But he did. He divided. He made. He led. He split. He brought out the streams. I mentioned the Passover and the Exodus earlier as it relates to the, the Last Supper and, and the Seder meal that Jesus led with the disciples there in the upper room. Uh, and this is the first thing that Asaph starts with. He starts with the Exodus. This is where he picks it up. Now, uh, he starts with the Exodus and uh, specifying the marvels of things that God did for Israel. Now, he could have gone further back to the miracles he did with Joseph or all the way back to things he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he starts with the Exodus. That's the first thing he points to. But I believe that it's likely that the men of Ephraim, back in verses 9 through 11, because it says that they turned back, um, even though they had their bows and they were ready for the, they refused to walk in his law. Remember in verse 11, speaking of the men of Ephraim, it says, and forgot his works and his wonders. And I believe that it's likely that the men of Ephraim were alive during the Exodus, that they saw themselves. They would have no excuse. They would be as well, if, well, if we would have seen something great, we wouldn't have turned back. God's like, you went through the Red Sea. Right? Literally, you saw me defeat the entire Egyptian army. Their chariots were... <laughs> because it flows, it's my... My belief that, that that's why he has them juxtaposed beside each other is that many of Ephraim saw that. So how in the world would you not be able to trust God and not go forward? That they had seen with their own eyes what began in Egypt and then took place at the Red Sea and the part of the Red Sea and then on into the wilderness of Sinai because he begins to go through other parts of the Exodus and, and the 40 years in the wilderness and all the things that God did. Um, but these are the very wonders that they forgot. And they shrank back. But you and I, we can forget great things God's done for us in the past and be nothing but, I don't want to do the Christian life. God's like, did I not save you? Did I not save these people in your life? Did I not provide for you? Have I not loved on you? Yeah, but it's been a bad week. Right? Whatever it may be. And they shrank back, and instead of 
being amazed at God, they became impressed with the world. They became impressed with the pagan nations. They became impressed with the gods of the Amorites or all the nations that they would see around them. And they're having so much fun. They, have kind of, they, they can do whatever they want. We've got these Ten Commandments we've we got to follow. In my own Bible, I, I've highlighted... Uh, these marvelous things that God did and, and just remind myself that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still doing marvelous things. Verse 17, but now to all of that that they had seen, at verse 16 flows to 17, so they've seen the Red Sea part. They've seen the miracles of God. They've seen him cause the waters to stand up like heap, and then he goes all the way into the wilderness where he makes just the most clear, living, fresh water come out of a rock. Enough to feed, enough to, uh, or give water and hydration to two million people. That's a lot of water. And it keeps coming. So it's not like, well, we need enough water for a basketball team. No, two million or so people. But verse 17, but they sinned even more against him. So to, to, to God's goodness, the response was sin by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And now we know that he's clearly moved into the Sinai here, and they tested God in their heart. By We'll get to that in a second. But they, but they sinned even more. Once again, it's a heart issue. The heart is not set to the worship of God, but it's set to what can God do for me. We're not we're not saved. He already did something great for us. He saved our soul. We have eternal life. The rest of our life is feet washing. That's what Jesus modeled there in the upper room. He said, your saved life is now about washing feet. But I thought it was about building mansions. And see, God is nauseated by some of these ministries that are all on the TV channels, everything else that are like building these kingdoms and telling everybody, you come and listen to my sermons and you're going to be a millionaire. It's not at all what Jesus said. No, no. You, not only, they started out in the desert with dusty feet and Jesus said, you're going to wash dusty feet. And Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life. And so our, our salvation is the gift. All the reward is in heaven. There may be some blessings, and there are many blessings that we get today, but that's mostly in the peace and joy that comes by the, by the Holy Spirit, not by stuff or acquiring or getting more power or more popularity. That's the things the world seeks to have. They want all the Instagram follows. They want their face on Time Magazine. They want stuff and people to know, acknowledge them and have prestige and, you know, look at all the degrees I got. Aren't I smart? All these kind of things. We don't follow after those things. So, um, But it's a hard issue. They rebelled against God. They tested God in their heart. And by the way, um, God did all this for them, and they turn around and resist him. I have found in 16 years or so of ministry now uh, that some of the people over the years that we have loved on the most... They had lots of baggage. 
They had lots of needs, which everybody has to some degree, but some of the people we've loved on the absolute most have been the most prone to leave and no gratitude whatsoever of all. And you might have experienced this in your own life, like a family member, you helped and helped and helped and helped and helped and helped and helped, and finally, like, thanks, but no thanks. You're like, my checkbook took a hit, my time took a hit, my mental capacity took a hit, and this is your answer, and this is what people do, and what we've all done. We're all guilty. Sometimes we've done back to God, right? He's like, I've done all this for you, and I get a door slammed in my face. Verse 18. They tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. It's interesting the things that God makes ASAP put in here. You would say, is that really a big deal? It is to God. Their wants, their desires. It wasn't a prayer of theirs, Lord, whatever you want for us. It's no, this is what we want. We, our society has become very demanding now. We want, 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 want. It's a bad, bad place to be. Verse 19, yes, they spoke against God, and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? It sounds like Satan. Has God really said, remember there in the garden, has he really said this? Has he really said that? Can God really prepare a table? We may not think that some doubting and complaining is speaking against God, but we need to think again. It is. Because he said, they spoke against God. Just by asking, can God do this? Can God? So it's good for us to cultivate. No, Lord, we know you are able to do all things. Things for us all to learn there. Uh, verse 20, uh, behold, he struck the rocks, so or the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he, also, can, he give bread, can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? God provides water for them all to live. Um, by this point, you know, he's provided for their every need at every place anyway. But they want meat and they want bread. Sounds like five guys to me, right? Meat and bread. Put it all together. All you need is cheese on there and you're good to go. Uh, if you haven't eaten dinner yet, you'll be out soon. Here, just a couple minutes. We're almost done. Uh, but, um, but to that, look at verse 21. Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. You do not want to anger the Lord. We are no match for the Almighty. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and also came up against Israel. And we know the Lord on several occasions uh, judged Israel on the spot. Would wipe out a certain number. God is not, he's not uh, slack to chasten when it's needed. The Lord was furious. All that he had done, verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. They forgot, they didn't believe, and they had no longer, they no longer had any trust in the Lord that he could be trusted. Spurgeon says, ere we condemn them, lest, let, ere we condemn them, let us repent of our own wicked forgetfulness, and confess the many occasions upon which we have also been unmindful of his past favors. And that's a good reminder because 
We don't ever want to read the scriptures about, look at, poor, look at Israel, look at Israel, look at Israel. God's like, no, no, look in the mirror. You have a lot of their same tendencies. You're cousins. You're the same nature without my nature in you. And that we still have a flesh that we fight the, the, the two war against each other. We have a lot about in the epistles speaking of these things. But yes, we have to remember, Lord, where, where am I forgetting and when we forget, we stop trusting. And, we, and we, um, we take for granted, as the scriptures say, so great a salvation. We think of our salvation is not, yeah, I'm, I'm saved, that's not such a big thing. But if I had this, then I'd be happy from the Lord. Verses 23 through 25. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them full food. Not angel food cake. This is not that. <laughs> that came later. I don't know when that came. But. but some have tried to explain manna as something that... Uh, it, and you've seen, you've probably seen this in some... Scholars have tried to say that manna was something natural in the world that God caused to grow up out of the ground. Not at all. We know that it came down from heaven. We know that it came down from heaven. First of all, the scriptures say explicitly that it came down from heaven. So that's, how you, that's all you need to know. And the fact that it says angels' food, it, it, we don't know exactly what that means. But we do know that it's very possible that God used angels to administer it that he, his angels would actually lay it on the ground every morning. But we don't know exactly how God did it. Or even do angels eat in heaven and stuff? Well, we've seen them eat on earth, uh, but we don't really know exactly all that is meant by that. But we do know that the manna came down from heaven. It was not something natural on the earth. And it also had to come down from heaven because it pointed to Jesus who would come down from heaven as the greater manna, John chapter 6. So we know that manna came down from heaven. It really was the food from heaven that God brings it out of heaven, lays it on the ground, and they, it, this would be better than anything you get at Whole Foods. Anything you could ever get at the health store, it would not bother your system. It would be everything. It would be protein, carbs, wouldn't spike your insulin, all the, all the stuff, everything would have been perfect. And yet, like, we want something better. Right? God's like, you really want something? You want something that's going to actually give cancer? And all? Okay, you can have the other food. But it had to come down from heaven because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I have come down from heaven. So the manna had to come down from heaven because it was foreshadowing that Jesus was going to be the greater bread, the greater manna to come down from heaven. A couple of quick verses, then we've got to wrap it up. Verse 32, just drop down to verse 32. And uh, it says, in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe his wonderful works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. The more we reject God, the more we will live in fear, anxiousness, and futility. And everything seems like a treadmill. But they still did not believe. Uh, verse 35, and then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God their Redeemer. There would be times when God would, they would, 
The lights would come back on. They would remember. They would return. We see two names of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Jesus called that rock was Christ. And Titus 2, 14, he who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. We know that Jesus is the redeemer. Last couple real quick. Verse 41, yes, again, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, you can't limit God. God's not limited in any way, but our unbelief and our rebellion and our ambivalence to things that he is telling us to pay attention to will result in God leaving us to fend for ourselves. And that's not a good place to be. Amen? So that, at that point, we're limiting. Like, I would be limiting God's power to save people if I decide, you know what, I'm just going to preach without praying, preparing, spending time on my knees. I'm just going to wing it. First of all, that's a really foolish thing to do. There's no fear of the Lord if you would do that. But secondly, you would limit the work of the Spirit. You would be quenching the Spirit to do that. And in your same life, you say, well, I'm just going to kind of go, uh, I'm just going to kind of go through the motions. I'll, I'll listen to a sermon on Sunday. But no personal walk. You're limiting the work of the Spirit in your life and in your family. So that, that limiting, that's what he's, that's what he's saying. It, it's not that God is limited, but he will step away, and you're on your own at that point. And then the last thing, verse 52, uh, verse 52, he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them like, uh, wild, like a wilderness in the flock, or like guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on to safety, verse 53, so that they did not fear. Um, reminding that God's people always need a shepherd. And this points to the shepherd to come, uh, that Jesus would come and be the shepherd. But we always need the shepherd uh, leading us and guiding us and protecting us. And in John 10, verse 11, it says, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And we know that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And then lastly, in the end of the passage, and we've got to wrap it up here, verses 68, I don't have time to read it, but verse 68 through 72, uh, it tells us that um, God chose the tribe of Judah uh, over Ephraim uh, where he would build Mount Sinai because Jesus would come through the tribe of Judah, not through the tribe of Ephraim. He would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he would come through. And then later he would choose, in verse 70, David his servant, and David he would take out of the sheepfolds because... Choosing David, um, David was a shepherd who would become king that foreshadows the shepherd who is king. Amen? All of this, that even God was using everything in Israel's errant ways, he was going to bring it back to a place of redemption through Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word. Uh, Lord, uh, we ask that you would help us, Lord, not to forget the great things you've done in the past, the saints that have gone before us, but also the great things you've done in our own life, starting with our salvation and the continued work of sanctification in us. We pray, Lord, that we would not just hear these things, but be doers of your word and apply them with the help of your Holy Spirit that we might grow. And Lord, we would impart these things to our children and children's children. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the night.